0: Today I want to teach on wickedness and righteousness. Contemporary culture has progressively moved away from terms like wickedness and righteousness and instead has adopted more clinical psychological language, right? No longer are notions such as wickedness and evil used to describe the conduct of people, but often softer terms such as misguided or psychologically challenged or unenlightened are substituted in our vernacular. Terms like evil and wickedness are avoided because they connote what? A spiritual reality. Modern man has excluded all this language from his vernacular because one thing leads to another and pretty soon you've got God and we can't have that, can we? So we, we got to do away with the language. So Satan works in what we call euphemisms. Okay, what is a euphemism? A euphemism is a way of saying something that softens the edge, takes the edge off of something. For instance, instead of saying dying, we say what? Passed away, kicked the bucket, bought the farm, passed on. on. Yeah, those are ways of saying it. Now, the Bible, interestingly enough, uses a euphemism for dying, doesn't it? What? Sleeping, right? You fall asleep. So when somebody gets fired, what do we say? He was let go, right? Instead of fired, you're fired. Um, Instead of abortion, we say women's health care, right? Or pregnancy termination, right? Takes the edge off. A woman's right to choose, right? A lot of times, and I think you'll recognize this, people deal in euphemisms in a dishonest way. Turn to Romans chapter 11. You know, euphemisms, it's a way of saying something without really saying something. I uh, I like not hard language, but I like clarifying language. And I think that's how God is. You know, when we read the Bible, there are certain sections of the Bible... You know, when I was a new Christian, I felt, well, it seems very unnecessarily harsh. Why would God say something so harsh? The older I get, however, the the way, you know, I've come to understand it is that God says things that are harsh because it clarifies. It clarifies the event, it clarifies his heart in regards to the event, right? God is a god of strong opinions, strong Emotions. Problem is, is that we deal with God in a very ambiguous way. He's just this big marshmallow of a, of a being up in heaven. And, and as a result, his judgments, his thoughts, you know, we put them out there more of a, as a suggestion than as a commandment. God is all about clarity. So Romans chapter one, verse 22, it says, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness otherwise you will be cut off okay so behold the kindness and sternness of god now as Human beings, we always want to put God in a little box and say, well, this is what God's all about. Uh, I think you'll do yourself a big disservice spiritually if you do that. God is very broad. When we think that we've got God all figured out, he'll always surprise you. You know, we recognize grace, for instance. Grace is God giving us r- room to grow, right? Room to grow. That's awesome. We can make mistakes and recover, It's not a fatal mistake. So we think, well, God's awful kind to extend that kind of grace. And then we look to God with this, you know, adoring kindness. And and granted, God is certainly kind, certainly kind, but God will not countenance wickedness, deliberate evil. He will not put up with it. God doesn't mince words when it comes to goodness and evil. Proverbs chapter 21 and look at verse 12. Proverbs 21, verse 12, it says the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Old Testament is God, right? The righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings the wicked to what? Ruin. Ruin. So how does God feel about the wicked? He doesn't like them. So God speaks in stark terms throughout the Bible. Wickedness versus righteousness and and, you know just as a barometer when you walk into a church i always listen for these clarifying terms do we talk in these terms or does this church talk in this term these terms do they talk about wickedness i remember when i was a baby christian i was almost embarrassed to talk about such terms wickedness Oh come on that makes you into a holy roller right no that means that you are clear on the spiritual fight that you're engaged in that there is wickedness in this world and it's good to be able to say that it's clarifying right if you ever wonder about you know the term wicked look up the the phrase the wicked in the bible just do a word study on the word on the two words you know the the term the wicked in the Bible. I think there's over 200 references. So it's the wicked. God is speaking to them as in this is who they are, the wicked. You know, it's not just a, a personality flaw. It is a defining term, the wicked. And we are surrounded by the wicked in this world. There's this book that I have. Uh, it's an excellent book. Uh it's called The Fire That Consumes. Um it's about, you know, the whole notion of hell and whether, you know, hell is a biblical concept or not. The author's name is Fudge. Which is, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> which is a hilarious name, but anyway, so that's that's uh, it's called The Fire That Consumes and I've read it a couple of times. It's a heavy-duty research book. So if you ever want to go buy it, it's not light reading by any stretch. But anyway, he has a quote in there that says, it says, most books about hell contain very little information from the Old Testament simply because their authors are looking for a certain image of hell, a place of unending conscious torment. The Old Testament provides no details about such a place, sending these authors back to their narrow search empty handed and somewhat apologetic. We looked, they honestly report, but we could find nothing. This does not mean that the Old Testament has nothing to contribute on the topic of hell. It provides important information, but we must ask the proper question to access it. If we look for signs that say hell, quote unquote, or search for the traditionalist version or vision of hell, we will find nothing. But if we move through the Old Testament with a different question, we will soon discover so much material that we will need to make more than one trip to take it all back home. What can the Old Testament tell us? The question that opens the door to biblical meaning is more general. And here's the question. What data does the Old Testament contain about the end of the wicked? Okay, that's pretty clarifying, isn't it? And uh, and it's important for us to understand that. When I read the Old Testament, read the Old Testament. Read it in the language the Old Testament is written in. Stop trying to superimpose your theology on the Old Testament and read what's written. It's a good habit to get into. I think there's so much misguidance in Christianity because what do we do? We have a concept and we superimpose it on the Bible and then we make the Bible through our concept, say what we think it says instead of allowing it to speak for itself, right? And uh, it's a bad habit, a bad habit. Go to Psalm 7, Psalm 7. Look at verse 8. It says, Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. According to my integrity, O Most High, O righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked, there it is, the wicked, and make the righteous secure. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. In the King James Version, it says God is angry at the wicked every day now isn't that something i love how that communicates god is angry with the wicked every day so this doesn't fit in our little mold of god this you know happy stay puff marshmallow god in heaven this is god who is angry with the wicked he's angry with them because they have made their minds up to be wicked they have made their minds up to be wicked it says in Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When we talk about the severity of God, it is reserved for the wicked, the wicked, okay? There's a quote that I really like. Uh It was, and I've read it in fellowship before. It's by C.S. Lewis. And I think it clarifies something that you know, an idea that I've been, you know, kind of wrestling with for years. Um, I noticed that, you know, when I was raised, you know, watching TV, you know, you had a good guy and you had a bad guy. Right. And the good guy was usually very attractive and he wore a big white hat and everybody adored him. And then you had the evil sniveling person. Right. And, and he was over there and he wore a black hat. And it was very clear that he was the evil one and this other guy was a good one, right? But the older I got, and especially when I got into the Word, I realized that evil doesn't work that way. When we talk about the Antichrist, is, is he like this? No, of course not. He's beautiful. He's, he's handsome. He's very attractive, you know, his personality. He seems like one of those people that, you know, he's got the Midas touch. Everything he does is golden. It's wonderful. So we can't rely on black hat, white hat to make the distinction between good and evil, right? Can we? And I, I like this quote. Listen to this quote. It says, I, I live in the managerial age, the world of admin. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens used to love to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps or labor camps. In those, we see the final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth, shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. How about that, huh? You would see one of these people walking down the road. You would never understand the evil that this man had in his heart. And yet we're watching the fruit of it. And so that's that's the thing that we need to be accustomed to is fruit. We need to change our perspective of what a wicked man or a wicked woman looks like. We need to get past Hollywood's rendition, right? Uh Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this is where... Discernment comes in. We talked about discernment maybe six months ago, the, the need for discernment. The only way that you're going to be spiritually discerning is by spending lots of time in the word, lots, in time, lots of time in prayer, that you become, that you're able to distinguish between good and evil. It talks about in Hebrews, right? That you have your minds exercised to discern between good and evil. That's the only way that it works, it said, "You are constantly engrossed in God and constantly engrossed in His Word." Matthew seven verse eighteen it says, "A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree must uh, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. By their fruit, not by their words, not by their personality. Not by their stunning good looks, but by their fruit. Learning to look at somebody, to assess a person by their fruit. What? And, and it's not just the immediate. It's the result of the fruit, right? It's the end of them. That you can look at a person, and this person does things that ostensibly seem good, right? But if you stick with it long enough and watch, it always leads to destruction. And that's how we have to be in our discerning, able to do that. Go to Proverbs chapter six, Proverbs six. Now, oftentimes when, you know, we see the sniveling person, you know, the, the person that, you know, they, that we in our minds associate with evil. There are people like that in the world. Usually those are the victims of the evil, right? They're the ones that, but the, the, the plotters and planners, they don't look the part, do they? Proverbs six, Proverbs six. Look at verse 12. It says a scoundrel and villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eyes and signals with his feet and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. So when we talk about fruit, what is a big fruit of somebody who is evil? Dissension, division, right? You see that this person, wherever he goes, he causes division. And he'll do it with all the most plausible arguments in the world. He's fighting for justice, right? You know, I'm fighting for people's, you know, liberties. A lot of times these people will create problems so then they can come rushing in to solve them, right? The problem didn't exist in the first place, but now it is, right? And that's how it works. Verse 14, who plots evil and deceit in his heart, he always stirs up dissensions. Verse 15, therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now listen to this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet. That are quick to rush to evil or into evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a man who stirs up dissension among brethren. You know, I read this and I'm, I'm interestingly thinking of Washington DC. I mean, these politicians who are supposed to be our leaders, uh, if we assess them the way the Bible tells us to assess them, we would get a very clear distinct picture of what we're dealing with here power corrupts we know that don't we power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely power is intoxicating it's intoxicating there's this need to have more it's a lust it's a lust i need more and more and more power and it goes along with this god complex that a lot of these folks that you know, develop in their lives. Our culture has been allowed to, uh, has allowed power to coalesce in the hands of a few. And for those few, they now have unimaginable power. I mean, incredible power. And we think it's just a temporary thing. It is not. Because one of those things about power, once you get it, you don't want to give it up, right? The point is, keep the power decentralized. Keep it out of the hands of the power mongers, right? But... Uh, that isn't the case. Our culture is quickly replacing freedom with authority. It's becoming an authoritative culture. And what do I mean by authoritative culture? That you are constantly being told by your government, do this and do this and do this. Right now, it's public opinion that is shaming you into doing it, right? But there will come a day that with authoritative governments that, the public opinion will be replaced with a gun. Do this or else. Does that make sense, to everybody? That's what communism looks like. Uh, Romans chapter two. Romans two. The good and the wicked. What does God say about liberty in the in the book of Galatians? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Stand fast. Is that a political message? No, that's a spiritual message. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. God says stand fast in the liberty. Stand fast in the liberty, right? We should all, no matter what our political persuasion happens to be, we should all heartily agree on that, that God tells us to stand fast in freedom. And we should all be equally opposed to anyone who would try to remove that freedom. Is that Is that clear? You know, these days in our culture, if you start talking liberty, oh, you're one of those guys. No, I'm not one of those guys. I'm a believer in God. I'll talk about liberty all day long because that's what God says, not what a political party says. That's what God says. Romans chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. In other words, we are imperfect judges as human beings, aren't we? We all fall into sin. That's what Romans teaches. So when I like, if I want to, if I feel inclined to set myself up as a judge, I better keep this in mind that, you know, no matter what, I'm judging somebody else of sin. I got my own, right? It goes on here. It says, so... When you, a mere man, passes judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? See, that's the thing. God's judgment stands above all man's judgment. It says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to what? Repentance. See that? Isn't that beautiful? God is leading us to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Who falls under this judgment of God? We all do. We all do. You can set yourself up as a God on earth, but there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of reckoning. Verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Okay. Is that clear? There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, but glory, Honor and peace to everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For God, what, does not show favoritism. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't say, gee, I really like you, and to somebody else, I don't like you as much. God, it's a standard that's applied evenly across all humanity. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? See, the downfall of the wicked, it's all about choice. There are religious doctrines that teach that God, you know, that free will is, is simply a, um, um, and you know, like a mirage. It, we, you know, it gives the impression of free will, but there is no free will that God predetermined everything. Well, that's ridiculous. How could this, this section of scripture we just got finished reading exist if God predetermined everything. That doesn't make any sense. Wickedness is a choice. It's a choice. It is arrived at decision by decision by decision. And with each decision, there's fruit that corresponds to that decision. And that's why the fruit progressively gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, there's another quote here by C.S. Lewis. He, I love, You know, I've grown to love C.S. Lewis. I just can't get enough of the guy. He says people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do that other thing. I don't think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before and taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning that central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into that, into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of, it, each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or to the other. Isn't that exceptional? I just thought that was exceptional. Um, It's choice by choice by choice. You know, the word says, put you on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a thought by thought thing. You are doing that. You're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means what would the Lord have me to do in the situation? You put it on. That's who you are. Right. It's thought by thought by thought in season and out of season that you have a choice to make. He goes on to say that explains. What always used to puzzle me about Christian writers, they seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sin, sins of thought as if they were immensely important. And then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you had only to repent and all would be forgiven. But I have come to see that they are right. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self, the conscience, which no one sees in this lifetime, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted, and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, Can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of a thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. Isn't that interesting? I thought, thought that last line was pretty exceptional because you know, to the um, you know, the practitioners of you know, all things political, you know, with with the virtue signaling that we have in our day and time. Look at me and look at how virtuous I am. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter to your soul either. You can talk about that all day long, but if you're doing evil, it doesn't matter what you say. And that's important for us to keep in mind. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and God who are the judgers of my soul. And I've got to be willing to do what it takes in order to have a good report. Right. Go to Proverbs 28, Proverbs 28. This might be a familiar verse to people in Proverbs 28 and verse one. It says the wicked flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lions. Why is a righteous man as bold as a lion? Because God is behind them. Right. But the wicked man has nothing like that. That fear ultimately is his motivator. It may show up as ambition. It may show up as, you know, ruthlessness. It may show up in a variety of different ways, but at the heart of it, it's always terror, desperation. Isn't that something? And you can't give anything but what you are. And so, you know, you go back through history and you read about some of the horrible tyrants and despots, and, and what do they do? They become the purveyors of fear because that's who they are. That's their their fruit. Go to Psalm 10. See, that's the thing. You know, the Bible says that fear oftentimes or most all the time, really, I should say, is the consequence of sin. I mean, if you're sinning, you, you you may not, it may not show up in your good looks and in your car and in your influence and everything else. But every time you sin, remember that little twist in the soul, it's resulting in fear. It's resulting in fear. Uh, Psalm 10, look at verse one. It says, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Has anybody ever said that? I have. (laughs) Where are you? Verse two, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. Wow, how about that? In his pride, the wicked one does not see him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Isn't that something? There is a void there. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the village. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victim victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Isn't that amazing do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account, but you, O oh God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you and you are the helper of the fatherless. God takes care of the innocent, the pure of heart, doesn't he? He takes care of us. He loves us. He watches over us. He fights our battles for us. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Isn't that something? Ultimately, this is going to be done in the final judgments. But God is at work today, now. I look around and I say, could it get any more, could it get any worse? Well, certainly it can, it sure can but God is fighting the wicked right now. Remember, every day God is angry with the wicked. Go to Psalm 12. See, one of the wonderful things about our country is that it was set up by uh, Christian men and women. It was built in a godly fashion, and because of the way our country was structured, it has kept evil at bay. In twelve verse eight it says the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. But if you have a culture that honors wickedness, right? That honors wickedness, such as our culture when we honor abortion or honor transsexuality, or, or genderism, whatever they call it. Or honor, homosexuality. We honor these things. We, it says that the wicked freely strut about. You know, uh, uh, what was that minister's name? He says, um, Aaron, Aaron Rogers. Adrian Rogers. Yes, Adrian Rogers. He was a minister with Southern Baptists and he said that what men used to do or talk about in back alleys now, they parade down Main Street, right? The proliferation of evil and, and wickedness in our day and time is, is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. It's not just that they do it. They turn around and they say, if you don't do it and if you don't approve of it, then you're bad. And they've turned everything on its head. It's truly amazing. Go to Psalm 37. Th- Psalm thirty-seven. The one thing that we have to keep in mind, though, is that it's expected. This is what the Bible says. It's to be expected. You know, we think about how horrible things are. You know, the Bible in the New Testament it was, is a series of letters. And some of those letters, like Corinthians, for example. Corinthians is written to a city of believers in a city that was just wholly given over to sexual idolatry. I mean, it was a mess. So it's not like this is new. Psalm 37, look at verse 1. It says, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. I can't determine what everybody else is going to do, but I can dwell with the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently on him. Do not fret when evil men succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger And turn from wrath, do not fret, it leads only to evil. Is that clear to everybody? Fretting, sitting there and just, you just are turning it over in in your mind and your soul and you're getting anxious and you're getting angry, it leads only to evil, okay? For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Wow, what a promise, huh? What a promise. But there's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, what did I leave off? Yeah, there it is. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth on them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. How about that? <laughs> I know, I know. The Lord laughs at the wicked because he knows their day is coming. You know, and it's what I've talked about in this fellowship, Uh that, you know, in my mind, you know, natural man in general and the wicked specifically, You know, this is how I see them. They've got a fist up to God. That's how it is. We aren't that way. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. What does that mean? That means that there are consequences. What does it say in Galatians? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's, it's just one of those unbreakable laws of God. Verse 16. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The days of the blameless are known to the Lord and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty, but the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemy, enemies will be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. So, you know, you're in the midst of a, a a tough situation. What are you doing? You're giving. You know, I read this, this quote. Um, it talked about the concentration camps and how the concentration camps because of the uh, you know the rarity of food and you know the horrible situations, it turned most men into beasts you know they were just you know scratching for their next meal. but this thing that I read talked about that there were certain men who went around giving their last bit of food to somebody who needed it. And the reason being is because you can take away my money. You can take away my family. You can take away a lot of things, but you can't take away my choice. I can do the right thing no matter where I am. I can do the right thing. And I love that story, that you can choose not to be reduced to this groveling individual. That you can keep yourself from becoming evil. It's a choice away. Verse 23. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his step firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall for the Lord upholds him by his hand. I was young and now am, I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. Wow. How about that? They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The law of his God is in his heart. His feet do not slip The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives, but the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in in its native soil, But he soon passes away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. I love that. There is a future for the man of peace. Let me say that one more time. There is a future for the man of peace. Of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Doesn't that just give you goosebumps? Oh my gosh, that is something else. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 21. My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. Wow, what a admonition, huh? Don't allow your perspective to get usurped. Usurped. I've seen this happen so many times where somebody has, you know, a spiritual perspective. And then they allow the the politics of the day to usurp their discernment. Does that make sense? God's right and wrong gets replaced with a political party's right and wrong. And they aren't seeing things clearly. Does that make sense? Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't mean that we don't participate in politics, but what it does mean is that we don't allow our vision to get obscured, right? We can't allow that. They will be life for you and ornaments of grace. Uh, ornaments to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. And this is just, what a great admonition, right? What do you do when the whole world is falling apart around you? You're giving to your neighbor. You're blessing your neighbor. You've got stuff to do, right? As a disciple of Christ, you've got stuff to do. So get to doing it. Keep, keep on keeping on with your day-by-day submission to the Lord. You have things to do. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, you know, after all this stuff is over and I'll give you to, give it to you tomorrow <laughs> when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. You know, this nonsense where people are just hating each other's guts because they have a D next to their name or an R now. That certainly doesn't mean that I don't disagree with people. That's not what I'm saying. But it does say that I can love my enemies, right? I can love my enemies. I don't hate people because we are in disagreement. And that's important, especially people I've never met before. You know, I've always been fascinated with this whole notion where you have two uh, countries, European countries, Christian countries, like in World War One and World War Two, who went to war with each other. And on both sides, you had... Christians killing each other and how perverse that was. You know, our civil war, same thing. You had the North and the South and on both sides, you had Christians killing each other. And in other situations, these people who are killing each other could have been best friends, could have been, you know, you know, lifelong buddies, but because of this thing, they were killing each other. I mean, you ever think about that? You know, Uh, back you know when we were growing up you know better dead than red right there's you know and there is a time for singleness of mind when it comes to defeating an enemy who's doing something wicked and understand what i'm saying but we're dealing here in with people i think jesus christ had such a radically different perspective than the the age that he came to right remember the The Jews were all about, you know, if you're not, if you're a Gentile, you're scum. And then it got transferred, if you are a Hellenistic Jew, you're scum, right? And then, you know, it it became more and more and more exclusive. Well, that's not what we're all about. We're not, it's not about exclusivity. We're supposed to be out there loving the world and telling the world about Jesus, Right? We're not trying to hide in our subculture. Verse 31, Do not envy a violent man or choose his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. Boy, I'd love to be in the confidence of God, huh? Him telling me his secrets. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honor. But fools he holds up to shame. Isn't that great? Uh, we're, we're kind of moving towards the end here. So, uh, uh, turn to Proverbs chapter four. We're going to look at a few verses in Proverbs and, and call it a day. Proverbs chapter four, look in 13. It says, hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well for it is your life. Do not set foot. On the path of the wicked or walk in the ways of the evil man. So Proverbs is written to whom? Did you know this, Jake? The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is written to the young man, young man, young, young women, young girls, right? And it's to teach them wisdom so that they will be able to, you know, manage through life, right? And that's always a big concern for parents is who, who are my boys gonna, or girls gonna, you know, have for friends? You know, you want them to have the best friends, but you can't go in there and micromanage their lives either. Right. So you teach them and you exhort them and you say, look, keep out of the path of evil people. You don't want to get associated with these people. Right. Verse 15. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way for they cannot sleep. Till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining even brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You know, the subject of political violence being used as a political tool. I watched it being used all summer long in cities all across the nation, right? 30 people died. Uh, uh, 70 cops were injured. A um, billion dollars of property damage done by these people, violent people, people that our children should never have anything to do with ever, right? And then last Wednesday, the violence in the Capitol. And I'm not condoning that at all. Those people ought to be held to the same standard, shouldn't they, right? And anybody who is, you know, worthy of, you know, a righteous thought should be able to say that. What went on in the Capitol was wrong. It's wrong on both sides. It's wrong. They they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And, and granted, let, I'll just make the point, you know, a lot of times the evil person doesn't think he's being evil. He'll allow himself certain fantasies to cover over it. But who do you have to answer to? It's God. God is who you have to answer to. Proverbs 10, verse 3, The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. Verse 6, Blessings are upon the head of the just, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. If you think you're going to leave any kind of legacy in your life, God says, Nope, your legacy will rot. Uh, it says, uh, No, I'm looking at verse 11. The mouth of the righteous man is a well of life but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. You want to speak life like the song says. Verse 16, The labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. How about that? Verse 24, The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him. Remember what I said earlier? The wicked is driven by their fear. It shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. As a whirlwind passes, so is the wicked no more but the righteous is an everlasting foundation how about that what do you want to build your family on i want to build it on that proverbs uh, 1030 the righteous shall never be removed but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth the mouth of the just Bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. I I love that. Knows what is acceptable. That takes wisdom and self-control, doesn't it? There's a little meme that is on the Internet. How many times have you started writing something and then deleted it? That shows how wise you are. Right? That there's, you know. Oh, yeah. What are you doing with your life? Um, look in, uh, chapter 11, verse five. The righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Look in verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts for joy. Yeah. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. So yes. It is important for us to be involved in politics, but politics can't be our religion. Verse 18, the wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Chapter 15, verse 8, the Lord detests the sacrifices of the wicked, but prayer of the upright pleases him. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. I love that. Uh, Verse 26. The Lord detests the thoughts of the wicked, but those of the pure are pleasing to him. Verse 28. The heart of the righteous weighs its answer. How about that? The heart of the righteous weighs its answer. That means that you don't just spout off. You won't ever put yourself in a position where you're just spouting off at people. That is just ridiculous. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's what the Bible teaches. Getting into shouting matches with people is just not what we do. Jesus never got into a shouting match, did he? It's just not what we do. But the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. There you go. It says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous, huh? We don't want to be gushing unless it's gushing goodness and grace. Uh, Proverbs 17 verse 15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. Isn't that something? Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. Do we see that going on just a little bit in our culture? Absolutely. And you're going to see more and more of it. Chapter 18, verse 5. It it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the innocent of justice. Is that going on now? Absolutely. There's all kinds of that going on right now in our culture. Chapter 19. Look in verse 27. It says, stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Right? It's a choice, isn't it? Do you know what that's saying? Stop listening to what's right, boys, and you're going to stray far from the words of knowledge. A corrupt witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked gulps down evil. That's pretty amazing. Look in chapter 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows out the wicked. he drives the threshing wheel over them. Jake, do you know what winnowing is? winnowing okay back in the uh biblical culture, what they would do is they would bring their wheat in from the fields and then they would put them on a what's called a threshing floor and either they would get on there and they would beat it down or they usually have an ox and they'd you know pull it around and have a big wheel and and they break they break these little kernels of wheat and so they would break out and you would have the wheat kernel and you'd have the wheat seed and the husk you know just this husk on it and then they would winnow it and winnow it where they would take this wheat and they would throw everything and throw it up in the air and the seeds would come down because they were heavy but the wind would blow the chaff away right this this outer husk right and that's what god does with our lives (laughs) he winnows us He winnows us. He keeps the good stuff and gets rid of of the bad stuff. So look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 10. The wicked man craves evil. His neighbor gets no mercy from him. How about that? A lot of times we're overly impressed by somebody being adamant. You know, you listen to somebody, he's just super sure of himself. Well, make sure that that's true confidence in the message. And not, you know, spiritual animacy. You know, the uh they crave evil, evil and they, they give no mercy. Chapter 29, Proverbs 29, look at verse 16. It says, when the wicked thrive, so does sin. But the righteous will see their downfall. How about that? Verse 27, the righteous detest the dishonest. The wicked detest the upright. How about that? Verse sixteen of twenty nine. It says When the wicked thrive, so does sin, but the righteous yeah, I already put I already said that, sorry. Uh look in verse uh seven. It says the righteous considereth the cause of the poor, but the wicked regardeth not to know it. Right? When you're righteous, you're thinking about more than yourself. In other words, the wicked are all about selfishness. Look in verse two. The righteous thrive. The pe- uh, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. But the w- when the wicked rule, the people groan. And uh, chapter twenty-eight. Verse 28, when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. How about that? But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share today. I think the Bible has much more to say about the subject, and I think we ought to engross ourselves in this. This is what we should be learning about, right? This is what we should be occupying our thoughts with. Um, I, I just think it's very important. And, you know, the beautiful thing is, is that w- when you do spend time, engrossed in god's word what's the thing that god keeps reinforcing i'm there for you i'm there for you right i will never leave you i will never forsake you right nothing shall separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord nothing there is no reason for us to be fearful none you know this isn't just a happy peppy talk this is truth god is with us there's nothing to be afraid of. All right? All right. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. Father, we thank you for the starkness of your message, Father. And Father, we, we are big boys and girls here spiritually. We can deal with the starkness of your message that there is wickedness and righteousness in this world. Father, we want more and more clarity. We want to be able to see the righteous and see the wicked. Father, I thank you for watching over our group here. Father, we're small, but we're mighty. I thank you, Father, for blessing each person with just that clarity of soul that each one of us just longs for. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for just helping to bring us to decisions of of righteousness, that, Father, we can come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. So I thank you, Father, for these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ.
1: Amen.
0: All right. You
1: are my homie. So, find rest by your blood. I now confess, Jesus, you are my hope.